Thank you for tuning in to listen to this week's sermon at Bethel Church. Every week, Pastor Jeremy Dean delivers a powerful message rooted in Scripture, a heart for the gospel, and a love for God and His church. We also hope you check out the Bethel Church podcast, which release on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. throughout the year. To learn more about Bethel Church, you can visit lovingbethel.com. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Here's Pastor Jeremy Dean. Uh, those of you in here, if you'll take your Bibles and go to John, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. And so we are in the middle of John the Baptist's testimony, his testimony of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at John the Baptist this morning. But as you're getting there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you had to wait for something? All the time, right? We're always waiting on something. We went yesterday and we went snow tubing. It was, what, 70-something degrees on Friday, and we went snow tubing yesterday morning. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But, but we, we got there a little early, and then we kind of got there before the crowd, but then when the crowd started kind of coming in, we, we, we were having to wait a lot longer in line to get to the top of the hill and go back down. You know, I'm sure you can call, go online and find out how much time you spend waiting at red lights, Right? You know, we spend a lot of time sitting there waiting on it to go from red to green. And sometimes we're waiting patiently, and other times we're not waiting so patiently, right? You know, maybe, maybe you, when you were a kid, you remember what it was like to wait for Christmas, to wait for Christmas break to come, to get out of school for a couple of weeks, to wait for Christmas Day to come so you get up early and, and get those gifts. You know, you're, you're anticipating it, and it's just it can't get here soon enough, right? There's all kinds of things that we're waiting for. Now, maybe there's some things that are a little more serious that we wait for. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're waiting for that surgery. Maybe, maybe there's something that's, that, that's been bothering you, that's causing you trouble, causing you problems in your health, and you're waiting for it to be removed. So that it no longer is an issue. It's no longer a problem. You can get back to doing the things that you once did. Or maybe you've had surgery and you're waiting for that recovery uh, to come so that strength comes back into your muscles and, and, and you get through the rehab finally and you're, you're getting back to moving like you once moved before. We're always it seems, waiting for something. Here in, in, in the text of John, we are, we are looking at a moment, we're looking at an event that is the culmination of waiting. You know, in my, in my, own, in my own life, I remember as I was thinking this morning and kind of asking, when, when have I spent a lot of time waiting? I remember with Elijah, my son. You know, I, we've shared with some of you this story before. Elijah was born, um, he was not premature, but he was born with a lot of health issues. He had a hole in his heart. He had a hole in his diaphragm. Uh, he, he had two surgeries uh, in the hospital before he came home from the hospital. It was seven weeks before we brought him home from the hospital. And when we brought him home, we brought him home with a G-tube, a feeding tube. And, and, and the waiting began. We, we would feed him every day, five or six times a day for an hour each of just pumping milk into his tube. And it was a struggle at times. And at other days, had, we had his, our good days, we had our bad days. You know, but we, we waited for healing. We waited for the day when that tube would come out and we no longer had to hook him up to a pump 
for feeding. We waited for the day when he would eat by mouth, when he would put it in his mouth on his own and not just spit it back out. We waited for that day for two and a half years. It was a long time to wait. But I tell you, when it came out, when he had the surgery and they removed it and they stitched him up and closed that hole, man, it was a celebration. We actually had a party. We had a button party for him where we celebrated with our church that he had gotten this out and that he was healthy. And he's one of the ones you saw walk down here in the front. You know, he's, he, he's, he's good as can be, and we're thankful for that. But when the waiting was over and the day had finally come, man, it was nothing but pure joy. We'd gone through a lot of tough stuff, had to deal with a lot of hard things. It was not easy, but man, it was worth the wait to know that he's healthy now. Look, in John chapter 1, I want you to grasp kind of where we are in the context of this chapter, in the context of history, that there has been a waiting. There has been an anticipation. There has been an expectation, but it's been hard. It's been a journey. It's been a struggle. But when John the Baptist comes on the scene and we hear the testimony, the witness that he bears about who Jesus is, the day has come for celebration. It is here. The event has come. The waiting is over. Take a look at John chapter 1. Look at verse 29. The verses we're going to be in this morning are 29 through 34. It says this, The next day, he, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, he said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 34. This is John the Baptist's witness, his testimony of Christ. He says, and I have seen and bear witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us about who you are, about what your plan is for us, about your salvation for us. We thank you that you have revealed Jesus Christ, your only Son to us in the pages of Scripture. And God, I pray that as we've opened your word and we read it, that you would help us to understand it. You would help us to receive it and believe it and trust in you for our very lives. We thank you, Lord. We give, us, we give this time to you. It's in your name we ask all these things. Amen. Now, as we're going through this, there's a lot of notes. If you've got a worship guide inside, there's a slip of paper for note-taking. If you want to do that, there's a lot of things to kind of fill in. I'll do my best to get through all of it and get you home, right? But I want you to take a look at what the big idea is. John says it in verse 29. This is the big idea for this particular passage, is that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Jesus takes away the sin 
of the world. But to understand what that really means and what we're getting at, we're going to unpack this passage somewhat backwards. If you look at verses 31 through 34, it says this, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. A couple of things that stick out to me here. One, John at the very end says, this is the Son of God. This is the one and only from God. This is God Himself. If you go back and look at John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is God with us, just as we sang. But if you look at verse 31 and verse 33, there's a phrase he says twice, I myself did not know him. That sounds weird to me. Here we have John the Baptist bearing witness about who Christ is, that he is the son of God, but twice he acknowledges, I didn't recognize him. If you're taking notes, I'll put it this way. Jesus was extraordinarily ordinary. Jesus was extraordinarily ordinary. In other words, he did not stand out in a crowd. Here is John the Baptist out in the wilderness, away from Jerusalem and the religious center, and he is, people are coming to him to hear his message of repentance, and he's baptizing people for repentance, and they're listening to him, and there's a crowd out there, and Jesus is among them in the crowd, but here John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, he's seen Jesus before, didn't recognize him as the Messiah. Why? Because he looked like just a regular old dude. He was just another man. He was just another guy. He hungered. He thirsted. He was a carpenter's son. Right? He was, a, he was just like everybody else. At least it seemed he was. There was nothing about his appearance that stuck out to anyone else. So how is it that John the Baptist would know who the Messiah was? And he tells us in verse thirty. He says, I, did, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water. Who is that? Who sent John the Baptist to baptize with water? God the Father did. And so God is speaking to John the Baptist. What a relationship that is, right? He's just like one of the Old Testament prophets that has a relationship with the Father, and God is speaking to him. And John the Baptist says that God told me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God gave John something to look for. Something to watch for because Jesus was born in a manger, grew up with a mother named Mary and a father named Joseph, right? And he he had he he grew in stature and he grew in wisdom. He was born in the likeness of men. He didn't stand out in a crowd. He was like you in me. But God gave John something to look for. And in the verses, we, John does not record this. This is in Matthew, the, re, the, the record of Jesus' baptism. 
But this is what Matthew says about Jesus' baptism. We know that Jesus was baptized by John. It says this, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What did John see when John baptized Jesus? He saw exactly what God the Father told him he would see would happen to the Messiah. That the Spirit would descend on him and remain on him. And this happened to Jesus. Now John's Gospel doesn't record John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. We see this in Matthew, but the reason for that is because when we look at the testimony of John the Baptist, it is all about deflecting from him, like less of me, don't talk about me, it's not about me, John, I'm not the Christ, I'm not, the, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, it is all about Jesus. John's ministry was all about pointing others to Jesus. It's about him, it's about what he came to do, it's about what he's prepared to do. And so John, the author, did not bring attention to John the Baptist for that, to make John the Baptist seem so great. But what we notice here, we notice here is that God gave John the witness. He gave him the message. He showed him who Jesus was, the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus was extraordinarily ordinary. Now why? Why is that so significant? Because Him coming God with us, Him coming into the world that He created, Him becoming flesh is probably the greatest event or one of the greatest events to have ever taken place in history. That The God who made you was born as one of us so that He can sympathize with us in everything. Hebrews tells us that. That we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he is without sin. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your weight. He knows your struggle. He knows how hard it can be. He knows that even though you had a good day yesterday, today is hard. Even though tomorrow may be a really good day, the next day can be really difficult. Jesus knows what it's like. He can sympathize with us. And I thought about the question, why? Why didn't Jesus just come as a celebrity? Why didn't he just come as a king on, on, a, on a white horse then, why didn't he come with an entourage of angels and just, just marching down the road and everyone could see that's the Messiah, that's the promised one? Why? Because God is doing something. God is doing something. We, we often want the instant gratification. We often want the solution right here and now. But if we were to get it that way, we would miss out on what God is really wanting to do in our lives and in our world. God is doing something and it's worth the wait. The next point that I want you to see is this, that Jesus' ministry was extraordinarily great. If you look, go back and look. I told you I was going to work through this passage a little bit backwards, right? So if you go back and look at verse 30 and 31. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus' ministry was extraordinarily great. His ministry was greater than John, and that's the message that John the Baptist is declaring and saying that, look, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. John the Baptist came to point others to Jesus and what Jesus would do. Jesus' ministry was greater than the ministry of John. John says this over and over again in verse 30. He says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He existed long before I ever was born. Because the Word was in the beginning with God. And the Word was God. Right? He says in, in the verses prior, he says that he is unworthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus. John is constantly pointing others to Jesus and pointing them away from Him. Because what Jesus has is greater than what John has to offer. John's whole ministry, his whole existence, his whole purpose in life was simply to point others to Jesus. And our witness is very much like that. That's what we are here for. We are here to point our families, our kids, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our grandparents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, whatever label you want to give them, our witness is to point others to Jesus. Because his ministry is extraordinarily greater than our own. What he has to offer is greater than anything we can give. What he will accomplish is greater than anything you and I can ever do. He is great. Because John came to baptize with water, but if you look down at verse 33, what did Jesus come to baptize with? The Holy Spirit. Jesus came, in verse 33, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds weird. Does it not? I mean, maybe, maybe if you've been in church since you were two years old, maybe it doesn't sound so weird to you. But if this is maybe, your, maybe you've come in the last couple of years, this sounds kind of strange, right? Baptizing with the Holy Spirit, what are we talking about? Well, I won't go into a great detail about the Holy Spirit right now. I just want to give you a couple of things. A couple of things about what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Number one is this. The Holy Spirit marked the work of God in a person. In the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, when you would read about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a specific time and a specific purpose. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon David. The Holy Spirit came upon the prophet Elijah. The Holy Spirit came upon others. And when the Holy Spirit came on that Old Testament king or that Old Testament prophet, it was because God had a specific purpose for them to accomplish for a specific time. It did not, the Spirit did not remain on that Old Testament person. It came temporarily for that time and for that purpose. And so when, when God said, John, when you see the Holy Spirit descend and rest on a man and remain on him, he's the Messiah. That's a significant thing because this is the first time the Holy Spirit remains on someone. Remains on Christ. 
The Holy Spirit marked the work of God in a person. You know, the Holy Spirit is active. At, we'll see it too. He's actively at work today. He's at work in your heart. The Holy Spirit marks the work of God in you. If you are in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then the Holy Spirit is marking God, actively transforming your heart, transforming your conduct, changing what you love, changing what you desire, changing how much you care, changing what you think your role and purpose is in life. The Holy Spirit is renewing your mind. He's making you new. He's doing all of those things. The flip side of that is if you don't see that change happening in you, chances are the Holy Spirit is not on you. Because the Holy Spirit marks the work of God in a person. But not only that, the Holy Spirit brings life. The Holy Spirit gives life. When Jesus came as the Messiah, He didn't automatically right here and there start baptizing with the Holy Spirit. That happens after His ascension. So at the end of John... And then you go to the book of Acts. And then we see in Acts, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes and does something new and different. If you, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 2, it says this, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was at that point in the early church when the Holy Spirit promised by God came and indwelt believers. Now what does that mean? The Holy Spirit came and indwelt believers. The Holy Spirit came and rested on those who had trusted Jesus to forgive them of their sins. And they submitted their lives to following Jesus as Lord. The Holy Spirit rested on them. Now, I am going to ask you to turn, if you will, go to Romans chapter 8. Go a, if you're in John, go a few books over to your right. Romans chapter 8. One of my very favorite chapters in all of the Bible. We're not going to read all of it. I just want you to, if you want to, I encourage you, read all of it later today when you go home. But take a look at verse 9. Romans 8 verse 9. And as we read these couple of verses, I want you to take note of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Romans 8, verse 9, it says, But you are not controlled. He's, we're talking about the church. We're talking about believers. We're talking about those who have been saved, who are following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. That's a fair warning. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. I, I, you might have heard my voice kind of emphasize over and over in just these three verses, we see life and living occur 
numerous times. And every time is connected with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gives life. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came that we might have life. And this life is not just a beating heart and breath in our lungs. This life is the freedom to know God and to be with God forever without any constraints. Without any constraints. To have that freedom to have a relationship with our Creator because He loves us and wants to be with us. Jesus came to break down all the barriers that we can be with Him again. You know, I think about it this way. Think about someone who is in prison. Someone who is in a jail cell. They are alive. But are they living? Not many of us in this room would choose to be in their position. I, for one, would not because simply I would look at it and say, that's not the life that I want. Right? If you're in prison... You'll never fully experience the love of your marriage. You'll never fully experience the joy of parenthood. You'll never fully experience the satisfaction of community like this. You'll never fully experience the reward that comes from generosity and giving. You may get touches of it in that prison but eventually you got to go back behind the bars, behind the closed door. The freedom's taken away. You see, that's not the life Jesus came to give us. He didn't come to give us portions or pieces of life. He came to give us life to the fullest, abundant life. You see, Jesus came so that we could know the fullness of God. See, God is infinitely loving, infinitely good, infinitely merciful, infinitely gracious, infinitely powerful. Think of the attributes of God and you you, you list them out that way. Jesus came that we could know and experience and live in all the fullness of God's love and His grace and His mercy and His power. That we would have all of that. That's a whole lot more than some of the lives that we settle for today. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Romans, if you're there still, it says, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, that sin that constrains us, that sin that imprisons us, that sin that that, that, that is a a fake counterfeit of what we think life is supposed to be, 
He has set us free from that. It says the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. And then look, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. What kind of power is that? The power to give life. The power of resurrection. If we were to stop here today, here's the big idea for this. Do not settle for the cheap imitations of life that this world gives. Do not settle for the lies that the enemy puts out there that life is found in a bottle or life is found in a substance or life is found in a relationship with people or life is found in possessions or life is found in material wealth or life is found in experiences here on this earth. No, that is a glimpse. But sin closes the door. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus came to give you real love. Jesus came to give you real hope. Jesus came to give you real power to overcome those things that put you in that cell. Jesus came to give you real grace. Jesus came to give you real life. So whatever you walked in with this morning, whatever seems hopeless to you, whatever seems burdensome to you, whatever seems hard to you, whatever seems confusing to you in the world that we live in, Jesus came to set you free from all of that. His ministry is extraordinarily great. But how did he do it? Take a look at verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're taking notes, Jesus would accomplish an extraordinary work for the world. He would accomplish an extraordinary work for the world. John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, remember all of this waiting, all of this anticipation, all of this expectation, all of this burden on the, on the people of Israel being under the yoke of Romans and Greeks and Babylonians and all these other empires, all of this, and they're expecting God to send His one, His anointed one, the Messiah. And then here it is in John 1.29 where John the Baptist says, Look! There he is. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who breaks the chains, who sets the captives free, who doesn't let you remain in bondage, who came to give life. Those who heard John the Baptist in that crowd say, Behold the Lamb of God, their minds would have went to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. If you go back and you read Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy and you read Numbers, it will talk about the sacrifices that God gave the nation of Israel for the atonement of sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness 
of sin. But, but sacrifice goes all the way back. In fact, the first instance of sacrifice in the Old Testament goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There's only Adam and there's only Eve. And they've disobeyed God. They've committed a crime against God by not following the law that He had given them. They had eaten of the tree that He had forbidden to them. And sin came rushing into the world and cursing the world. And they were banished from the Garden of Eden, but God in His grace, He took the lives of a couple of animals and He clothed Adam and Eve with their skins to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, and to give them life. See, sacrifice in the Old Testament goes all the way back even before Leviticus. But God in Leviticus gives us, gave the nation of Israel these animal sacrifices for that very reason that the, that the blood shed by these animals would cover the sin of the sinner and give life to the person. It atoned, to use a church word, which simply means to forgive. And forgiveness, we know, means that it is no longer counted against you. That even in the Old Testament, God was a merciful, forgiving God. And He gave us these animal sacrifices to point the way to a greater sacrifice because none of these animals were enough to cover the sins of all the people. None of these animals were enough to, to bring it to full completion. It was never going to be enough. It was only simply to show what was needed, but it was never able to meet the need that the people had. So Jesus came. Jesus came as the Lamb. When, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, that's what everybody thought of, was the Lamb that was sacrificed. The Lamb that was given up for the forgiveness of our sins. And John points at Jesus and calls Him the Lamb. And so as the Lamb of God, I'm going to quickly go through these, but don't miss it. As the Lamb of God, Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. That He would shed His blood on the cross. Hey, we're in John 1. We're at the beginning of the Gospel. We have not gotten to Passion Week. We have not gotten to the crucifixion. And here John the Baptist in the beginning is saying, look, He came to sacrifice Himself for you. To give His life so that you can have eternal life. Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need like those of high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He doesn't need to do that since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. God, the Son of God, came and gave his life on a cross as a sacrifice to forgive you of all your sins. But as the Lamb of God, not only is He a sacrifice, He's also the substitute. He is in our place. He came and died for us, but He came and He died on the cross in my place. I'm guilty of my sin. The sins that I've done are my crimes. I should pay for them. I should answer for them. 
Jesus did no wrong. He never sinned. Even though He didn't stand out in the crowd and He was human like we are, He never once gave in to temptation. He never once sinned. He never once did evil. He never once thought it. But I have. We have. And yet Jesus, God Himself, came and died in my place. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement means punishment. And with His wounds we are healed. He did it for me. He did it for you. That no matter what's in your past, no matter what you're hanging on to, no matter what you think you're guilty of, Jesus died to pay for that. And not only is He the sacrifice, not only is He the substitute, but He's also the satisfaction. As the Lamb of God, Jesus would satisfy God's wrath against sin. Colossians 1.20 says this. I love this verse. Through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, that last phrase, making peace by the blood of His cross. God is no longer angry at the sin in your life because it's been covered by the blood of Jesus. John tells us in 1 John, a letter that he wrote, that Jesus didn't come for just a few. He didn't come to die for just a few people. He came and died for the sins of the whole world. This good news, that this message, that this extraordinary work that God did through Jesus, what He came to accomplish, He didn't just accomplish for the people who, who seemed to get it right. He didn't just accomplish it for the people who seemed to be good. He didn't just accomplish it for a geographical location or just one particular nation. No, He came and He gave Himself for the sins of the whole world that whoever would come to Jesus and believe that He is the Son of God, that He died in their place to forgive them of all their sins and receive Jesus as Lord of their lives, the Bible says you will be saved. Jesus came for you. Jesus is what we've all been waiting for. And the question this morning is what are, now, what are you now waiting for? I'm going to invite Christy to come. She's going to play. And in these final moments we have this morning, I want you to think about that question. See, Jesus came because He loves you. and He died for you. He forget, will forgive you. Not just someone else. He is speaking to you. And if you have not received Him, if you have not believed in His name, if you have not asked Him to forgive you of your sins, if you've not submitted your life to Him to follow His lead in everything, if you would not call Jesus Lord and Savior this morning, what are you waiting for? Today's the day. You can have life in all of its abundance, the power to overcome whatever the world would throw at you, the love, a love that you have never experienced before in all of its fullness. 
grace and mercy that like no one else has shown you is found in Jesus. But church, those of you who were with me walking with Christ, what are we waiting for? What is it in our own hearts that's a stumbling block to us? What is it in our own minds that's tripping us up? That we're doubting God over here. That we're saying, God, you can have all of me in this area, but Lord, I want to be in control of this. I can't let this go. I've got to fix it. I've got to make it right. It's up to me, God. You can handle all of that, but this I've got to do. Why do we do that? See, church, Jesus came to give you life that we would trust Him with everything and give Him everything. And when we do that, man, we can live in the freedom that we can know God in His fullness and be with Him and then nothing can get in our way. What is keeping us from serving or sharing or telling others about the God who has saved us? What are we waiting for? Let's take these moments and I ask you to just pray. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Pray right where you are. If you feel led, you're more than welcome to come and pray on an altar here at the front. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, I would simply ask you to pray and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Confess those things. Let Him know where you know you've gone wrong. And ask Him to save you and be Lord of your life. Church, if something's holding you back from living the life He's called you to live, give it up to Him. Trust Him with it. Let there be a breakthrough this morning in your heart that nothing would hold you back from becoming all that God had created you to be. Let's pray.